More than a year has passed since the first reported sonic attack in Havana, Cuba. Instead of questions being answered, even more have grown and multiplied. If it's answers you're looking for, there's very few places to go, but really, consistently, there's just one, the State Department and the State Department press briefings. These irksome events that happen in Cuba, the ones that are not entirely unlike those that occurred in the 1950s and 60s, the answers squarely reside with those who are responsible for America's relationship with other countries. As the State Department itself puts it, The Office of Press Relations supports the President and Secretary of State by explaining the foreign policy of the United States and the position of the Department of State to domestic and foreign journalists. But for every seemingly conclusive answer the media State Department press pool reports, weirder and even more improbable questions buzz back into our face, demanding attention like so many yellow jackets at a summer picnic. I'm your host, Marie Mayhew. Thank you for listening to Whatever Remains podcast. This episode, since the State Department is taking this incident very, very seriously, we give a helping hand to their spokesperson and talk about the possible cause of the Cuban sonic attack, even if they didn't exactly request our advice. This incessant swarm of weirdness surrounding the Cuban sonic attacks wasn't supposed to be Heather Nowert's, the newly hired press secretary's problem to solve. But then again, less than two years ago, Nowert wasn't even in government. Prior to joining the Trump administration, she was a Fox News personality, most recently acting as co-host of the morning's Fox and Friends. The new spokesperson for the State Department was ridiculed by some journalists after she led her first press briefing relying heavily on a binder of material to answer questions. She answered questions for about 30 minutes, during which she flipped frequently through a thick binder in an apparent search for specific answers. Derision only intensified when Nauert cited the D-Day invasion as an example of America's very strong relationship with Germany. When Nauert arrived at the State Department in April 2017, the relationship between the diplomatic press corps and the Secretary of State, Rex Tillerson, could be considered contentious at the best of times. Perhaps the new administration thought the situation may need a lighter touch, and thus, now it was tapped to be the face and voice of the administration's foreign policy. Heather Ann Nauert is a graduate with a master's degree from Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism and Mount Vernon College in Washington. She has over 20 years journalism experience. Prior to joining Fox News, she served as a correspondent for ABC News. But she hadn't specialized in foreign policy or international relations. And it was almost clear from the start that Nauert wasn't Tillerson's first choice. She resisted the ex-oilman's efforts to limit press access, reduce briefings, and limit journalists allowed to travel with him. Tillerson had preferred Genevieve Wood at the Conservative Heritage Foundation, according to several individuals familiar with the matter who spoke on the condition of anonymity because they weren't authorized to publicly discuss Tillerson's personnel decisions. 
When Nauert arrived at the State Department in April 2017, she found relations between Tillerson and the diplomatic press corps in crisis. No longer were there daily briefings that had been a State Department feature for decades. Journalists accustomed to traveling with Republican and Democratic secretaries for decades found they were blocked from Tillerson's plane. Department spokespeople had no regular access to Tillerson or his top advisors. We are here after all. Hi, everybody. How are you today? Well, we've had a busy day here at the State Department once again. That's what we do. Uh, keep you all busy. Uh, let me start off uh, today talking with you a little bit about the U.S.-China dialogue that's taking place here at the State Department. It can be seemingly easy to be dismissive of Nauert. Watching her at the podium during these daily press briefings, she normally greets the room with a cheerful demeanor that strangely does not feel forced. I doubt professionals not already steeped in this type of experience have an easy or forgiving transition into this type of role. More important, and I'm here willing to bet money on this, nowhere in that binder now are clutched as she white-knuckled it to her first briefing is there a section clearly outlining Cuba and sonic weapons. There's no PowerPoint deck three-hole punched into that binder that explains this incident, but still... She's the one that has to provide all of the answers. Let's listen to some of these daily press briefings as Nauert, from the beginning of the reported attacks, tries to provide some information. August 9th, the State Department coins the term the incident and lays out what will prove to be the only consistent points in the case, hoping that this will keep the deluge of questions at bay. This incident, this, this incident, incident. incident, and that's what and that's what we're calling it. We don't know exactly uh, it's been what. Since 2016, you don't know what this incident is. What this requires is uh, providing medical uh, examinations to these people. Initially, when they started reporting what I will just call symptoms, it took time to figure out what it was, and this is still ongoing. August 10th, no such luck. The dam breaks. Are we? We're done with this now. Okay. Okay. Has this acoustic harassment Some, stopped? I, look, I'm not going to confirm or deny uh, what you're saying. Um, we'll get a lot of leading questions here today. Uh, this remains an ongoing investigation concern, and I'm not going to get into that any further. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm done with Cuba right now. I've answered all that I can for you. Hold up. I've answered all that I can for you on Cuba. I know you still have questions. I'm not able to provide you all of the answers, okay? Investigation ongoing, period. August 23rd, the State Department makes what could be considered an error in judgment and calls these attacks unprecedented. This is a matter that we take very seriously. We are working and have been working to provide our staff and U.S. government employees with the best medical attention that we can provide to them. Okay. Do you know how many? Pardon me? Do you know how I'm not many gonna, I'm not going to be able to confirm numbers of people who are affected. Uh, sir, hold on one second, okay? I'm not going to be able to provide any numbers and that are affected. this type of attack unprecedented? Uh, this is unprecedented. We have not seen this type of activity take place before. Um, Anywhere? No, nowhere. No what one. is the U.S. doing, Heather? Can yes. I ask one question? Yes, of, 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 no. Ignore this part of the room. Um, um, I just uh, want to ask hold, one hold question. Hold on, hold on. We have Go a little on. bit of a polite thing that we try to do here, okay? Sure. I know you haven't been around here a lot. You're welcome sure. to come anytime, but we try to... This is a briefing for all oh. reporters, not just yes. one reporter, right? 
Um, and I would like to ask try to be polite and work together nicely. Okay. I'm more than happy to take your questions Um, as I have before. Listen, uh, how concerned is the state department about these diplomats Mm -hmm. who medical records show have brain damage? You can start to sense the relationship here between the state department and the press. The press senses that there's something up with this story and it's ending in brain damage. The facts, few as they are, just are not adding up. So uh, some have, some we have, some we asked to leave because uh, m- uh, their condition necessitated that. Uh, and they left, um, wanted to, uh, mutually agreed upon, left that country because of the situation, because of the symptoms that they were experiencing. There were others that have chosen to stay there, um, and some of them are still there. Does that answer your question? The press pool almost seems to have more information than Nauert and the State Department. August 24th. Um, so yesterday you said that the State Department had uh, medical professionals down to the staff. In, uh, I'm wondering if you can say whether or not one of those doctors, one of the Americans who has been injured by the activity. Uh, I am not aware of that. Um, I'm not aware of that at all. This is the first time I'm hearing. My my understanding is that, um, again, my understanding is that the people who uh, experienced these symptoms were U.S. government employees who were there working for the U.S. government. Okay. And then just um, as well, I've heard from some senior officials here that um, Cuba has been responsive to the U.S. for an investigation. Would you say that the Cubans have been working with the U.S. on the investigation? Or is that an overcharacterization? I I don't know. Uh, Responsive, working with, I... But it's not a joint investigation with the two... I don't believe it's a joint investigation. The U.S. government is investigating this. Uh, We have multiple agencies and departments who are involved in this and take it extremely seriously. Now, this refrain of, I've heard from some senior officials at the State Department, or its variant, senior members of the State Department tell us, become commonplace in relating the facts about the Cuban sonic attack. This phrase is used repeatedly in articles, news reports, and even in department press briefings themselves, where journalists are supposed to be getting the news and not necessarily relating it back to Nalbert. The question of who are these senior officials is not answered. After this, Nalbert does have an official statement. I want to mention that I have an update for you on this, on the number of people who have been affected. Uh, We have not provided that information in the past. Uh, We only now have the confirmation of the number of Americans who have been affected uh, by this. We can confirm that at least 16 U.S. government employees, uh, members of our embassy community, have experienced some kind of symptom. Maybe this should suffice, but it doesn't. There's still more questions. Like, how do you really know what is doing this? They're no longer experiencing the symptoms. Did, uh, it, I'm sorry, did I say no longer experiencing the symptoms? I no, think no, the, incidents, the, the incidents. The incidents are no longer occurring. Does that mean that something was found or something at, in these buildings was intermediated? I mean, how do you know that it's no longer an issue? Was there some physical there, object or... To my knowledge, discovery? nothing, uh, last I heard, uh, nothing has been, you know, uh, nothing has been identified as, you know, here is a piece of equipment, for example. And can you update us on the report? CBS had a report of brain damage, mm-hmm. according to a doctor treating at least one employee. I'm not sure whether about the numbers. 
Have you anything further I, to suggest, I can't quote, confirm, brain damage? I can't confirm any of that. Less than a month later, September 14th, the press wants to know if this incident is a deliberate attack. And the details have changed um, as more people have come forward. I know, what, you know, at one point the, the phrase health attack was used, mm -hmm. um, then we've gone to incident. Is, is there any reason to use the word attack at this point based on whatever new information you have? So, yeah. or, uh, you know, the secretary uh, said in back in August that our personnel in Cuba have been subject to health attacks. Um, we have medically confirmed that our personnel's health was affected by so, Is it appropriate to, to call these attacks? I, you know, the secretary called them health attacks. He certainly did. Um, they are, the health of Americans was in fact affected by it. Yeah, but it's the word attack that is the, yeah, the issue here. I understand. So, I mean, is you know, it- Look, I, the reality is we don't know who or what has caused this. And that's why the investigation is underway. Again, the facts as they are and the cause are elusive. A month later, on October 14th, the only real message that the State Department gives is about their view on the Cuban government and their role in this whole thing. Cuba is responsible for protecting our U.S. Embassy personnel, our diplomats who are serving down there under the Vienna Conventions. That has been very clear all along. They have that responsibility. That is what they are supposed to do. They have not ensured the protection and the safety and security of our personnel down there, and that position hasn't changed. That's where we We've not changed our view on that. The administration has not changed its view on that. Uh, the investigation remains ongoing, but we've also been clear about this. And at the State Department, we tend to be, you know, super, 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 super cautious uh, about some of the things we say. But to anyone who knows anything about the Cuban government and the past of the Cuban government, it's hard to imagine that certain things wouldn't be known that were taking place on that island right there. Okay. But the, that, that the president's comments caused some confusion. I mean, otherwise, why, why why did the department feel it necessary to send a cable to all the embassies and consulates around the world titled clarifying the well, Cuban stance after the comments were made? We all, and we in always, which that cable says specifically that we have not assigned. We the, always do send out cables that, um, that explain uh, any kind of changes in U.S. policy. And my understanding that that cable was anticipated. Uh, that was something that we had planned. No, no, no. That is something that we had had planned for and working on a cable that would go out uh, across the world to alert people to some of the um, some of the health concerns and areas. And we got to leave it there. Well, Thank on. you. Yes. You said that, and it's something that you said last Thursday for the first time that, you know, it's a small island and there's no way yeah. that the regime would know. Are you now? at least implicating that, you know, they're complicit somehow? I'm not, I am not saying that. An investigation is underway, but I will, I will just highlight that people who know about uh, the background of uh, the Cuban government, uh, it would be hard to imagine that uh, folks wouldn't know exactly what would be going on with them. It's on board. Like okay? You're saying, you know, yeah. someone in Cuba, in the Cuban government. Guys, I'm, I'm going to leave it at that. Okay, thank, thank you. you. Good to see you all. As I mentioned in an earlier podcast, the pressure and scrutiny around American embassies in foreign countries and those who work there is intense and relentless. The State Department's job is to safeguard our nation's interest abroad, meaning that they are constantly having to communicate to the press. A majority of their job is answering questions. These briefings that we have just heard represent just less than 60 days on just one topic, Cuba 
and you can feel the relentless nature of the relationship between Heather Nauert and the journalists that cover the State Department. So out of this set of briefings, here's what we know. America holds Cuba responsible for the health and safety of their embassy employees and have taken actions to rectify and reciprocate the relationship, namely pulling remaining Americans out of the embassy, issuing an international health warning about Havana, and sending the Cuban diplomats in America home. Next, the Cuban government denies any and all wrongdoing or involvement with any health attacks on Americans and seem as concerned and confused as the U.S. And then there's the State Department's greatest hits. We are taking this incident very, very seriously. The government has sent in health professionals to diagnose and treat the affected. It is an ongoing investigation. We, the State Department, and the government do not know who or what caused this incident. And more than a year later, we don't know if it's going to happen again. So really, Nauert and the journalists are in the same place in many ways from where they started. But now the relationship that was on the mend, the Cuban thaw, is back to where it was in the 1960s. The U.S. government, paranoid about Castro's intent, and Cuba in turn wondering if this isn't some new iteration of Operation Mongoose, and the people of both countries wondering what's going on. What was that noise? So, dear listeners, let's lend the State Department a hand and break down what could have caused the Cuban sonic attacks, starting with infrasound, or David Bowie's new control bomb. I had the good fortune of getting some information from someone whose specialty is acoustic weapons. Because of their government work, they could only give general guidance and information from public domain and not comment on the health attacks to any specificity. However, the information is especially clear and helpful. And if you are a huge geek like me, whose favorite pop culture characters are the X-Files lone gunmen, this is easily one of the coolest things to have happened. Attempts to build weapons that incapacitate people by harnessing the power of very low-frequency sound waves are destined to fail, says a German physicist. Some weapon developers have claimed that infrasound frequencies too low to hear can cause debilitating effects. But Dr. Jurgen Altman has studied scientific literature and is convinced that these types of weapons will never work. All these effects of infrasound do not really exist, he says. Dr. Jurgen Altman is a professor of experimental physics at the University of Dortmund, Germany, co-founder of the German Research Association for Science, Disarmament, and International Security. Dr. Altman is an expert on the potential military applications of non-lethal or less-than-lethal technologies. In layman's terms, Dr. Altman studies the physics behind subjects like nanotechnology, space-based lasers, advanced robotics, and acoustics. If there was ever going to be a real-life 20th century supervillain with a volcano lair and a robot army, odds-on favorite should be this guy— except for the fact that he is equally dedicated to conflict resolution, peacekeeping, and studies scientific, technical problems surrounding disarmament. When talking about infrasound as a weapon, he says, 
Infrasound, prominent in journalistic articles, does not have the alleged drastic effect on humans. At audio frequencies, annoyance, discomfort, and pain are the consequence of increased sound pressure levels. Temporary worsening of hearing may turn into permanent hearing losses depending on level, frequency, duration, etc. Beyond hearing, some disturbance of the equilibrium and intolerable sensations mainly in the chest can occur. Propagating strong sound to some distance is difficult, however. At low frequencies, diffraction provides spreading of energy, preventing a directed beam. Achieving sound levels which would produce aural pain, equilibrium problems, or other profound effects seems unachievable at ranges above about 50 meters for meter-sized sources. And while Air transmits infrasound very well, he points out that the wavelengths are so long, 17 meters or more, but it spreads out too rapidly to form a controllable beam. And specifically about the Havana attacks themselves, he says... I'd say it's fairly implausible. Regarding the concussive symptoms that some of the affected embassy employees were reported to have had, Dr. Altman says, I know no acoustic effects that can cause concussion symptoms. Sound going through the air cannot shake your head. Altman blames rumor and misunderstanding for the stories surrounding infrasound. You can't hear it, so you're inclined to believe what people say about it. In a November 2001 declassified United States Air Force Research Laboratory paper titled The Lack of Effects on Global-Directed Behavior of High-Intensity Infrasound in a Resonant Reverberant Chamber, Drs. Michael C. Cook, Clifford S. Sherry, Carol G. Brown, and James R. Jarshem address the military use of acoustic weapons. In a chapter called, Is the Potential of Infrasound Overrated?, they write, Infrasound and other acoustic generators represent a completely new mode of weapons based on novel physical principles compared to existing non-lethal weapons. This novel approach may be part of an attraction for some. Anecdotal reports of extraordinary acoustic and infrastructure weapon effects can make meaningful assessment and review of this area very difficult. Some of our previous bioeffects research studies have shown that weapons capable of audible sound generation have been grossly overstated. It has often been suggested that infrasound generators could be powerful enough to trigger nausea and diarrhea. It has also been noted that acoustic systems using infrasound could, in theory, cause a loss of muscle control and unconsciousness. Thomas reported that an article in a Chinese military medicine journal claimed that an infrasound weapon had already been developed and tested, and that the device was adjustable to cause controllable amounts of disorientation, nausea, vomiting, and incontinence. The details of this work, however, have not been reported in the English literature. In a review of technology, the Swedish Defense Material Administration concluded that the possible danger due to infrasound has been much overrated. Bunker noted that the alleged effects of infrasound for use as a non-lethal weapon have been questioned due to the contradictory evidence presented in previous reports. For example, when discussing the practical limitations of technology, Altman has suggested, due to basic physical principles, the development of a useful weapon using high-intensity acoustic energy is unlikely. 
The authors concluded that potential adverse effects of infrasound had been exaggerated in previous reports. Johnson stated, Infrasound is an overrated phenomenon as far as some authors would have you believe. Animals and people do not fall apart due to infrasound. Given our present and previous results, and the earlier results of other investigators, it seems unlikely that high-intensity acoustic energy in the infrasonic or low-frequency range will provide a device suitable to be used. The infrasonic death ray should at best be confined to the comics. For over three decades, scientists for both the private and the military sectors have debunked infrasound as a weapon. The wavelengths are too long and spread too quickly to form a controllable beam that could be aimed directly and concisely at one person. Human testing shows that the most prominent effect of infrasound is annoyance. While there's some proof to lasting effects on hearing, especially when indoors, there's no device source or machine that's been found to back this up. There's no consistency in the duration or the frequency of exposure that give any credence to infrasound and there's no proof that it can cause brain injury. So at the risk of disappointing David Bowie and William S. Burroughs, I'm checking infrasound off the list as a cause of the noise. So what about the other end of the spectrum? Ultrasound is a more likely possibility. At frequencies higher than 20,000 hertz beyond human hearing, ultrasound can damage tissue if produced with enough power. Doctors use focus blasts of ultrasound to smash kidney stones. Decades ago, researchers created an intensely powerful ultrasound beam in a laboratory that could kill mice at close range. Less powerful ultrasound beams don't cause injuries and have a variety of medical uses, including commonplace medical scans. But there's anecdotal evidence that at certain intensities, they can make people very uncomfortable. Very little data exists on how ultrasound in the air affects human health. This subject is Dr. Timothy Layton, Professor of Ultrasonics and Underwater Acoustics at the University of Southampton in England's specialty. He has investigated previous claims of people who complained that they had been victims of sonic attacks. Some reported incidents were false alarms, but in other cases, Layton recorded evidence of ultrasound in the air at railway stations, museums, and swimming pools where people had reported attacks, although the exposure was shown to be accidental, not a conscious planned attack. He doesn't know for sure how ultrasound causes symptoms such as the headaches and nausea described by the diplomats, but he suspects that sub-audio noise makes people anxious, which lead to the reported symptoms. Unfortunately, Anecdotes like this made up most of what scientists know about the health effects of ultrasound. The data is very slim, he says. If you're talking about a ray gun rifle knocking someone out with ultrasound that they can't hear at 100 meters, that's just not going to happen. Further research in ultrasound proves that the further sound goes, the weaker it gets. Ultrasound cannot travel a long distance, says June Quinn, an acoustic engineer at Southern Illinois University, and the humidity in a place like Havana would still weaken it all the more. An ultrasonic weapon would also require some type of direct contact, like a fluid medium, to be really conductive. That's why pregnant women get that gel on their abdomens right before the ultrasound imaging test. 
The state of sonic weaponry is crude and impractical due to physical limitations, such as the size of the device required and the laws of physics. The intensity of the very high-frequency ultrasound drops rapidly over distance, so any attacker would need an enormously loud speaker to have enough intensity to do any type of neurological harm. One scientist says, even to get across the street and into a building, you'd have to build a loudspeaker the size of that building. Also, a beam of ultrasound most likely would bounce off the exterior of a building. What little sound got through would be of a lower, less harmful frequency. To overcome these hurdles, one could try to use a bigger weapon. But a massive vehicle topped with a giant sound cannon in front of a diplomat's house would probably raise some eyebrows. An ultrasound-emitting device planted inside of a building may be close and powerful enough to cause harm to its occupants, but even an interior wall would block waves. It may be possible to focus ultrasound into a tight beam to aim at a particular target, but even with such a beam, it would be difficult to make a device small enough to be used as a handheld weapon, says Tyrone Porter, biomedical engineer at Boston University. And that device would be more likely to lead to disorientation than brain damage, he says. A smaller emitter, placed even more closely, perhaps in someone's pillow, might work, says Dr. Quinn. But it's hard to believe that such a device could escape attention. In theory, a building could be packed with small emitters. However, experts called it unlikely. For all these reasons, experts say ultrasound weapons should not top the list of possible explanations for the hearing loss, headaches, and other symptoms said to have been observed in the diplomats. So ultrasound, it's off the list. Option number three, poison. This one is a classic in Cuban and American relations. Poison, or some type of toxin, is the one option that does seem more sound over the others in explaining the symptoms of tinnitus, the effects on an individual's hearing and the brain. If the victims were poisoned with a higher than normal dosage for a drug that they were not meant to take, this would accentuate the adverse reactions. Scientists point to research on anti-cancer drugs having the same side effects that line up with what the sonic attack victims are reporting, hearing loss, tinnitus, dizziness, and nausea. Drugs prescribed to alleviate the side effects of chemotherapy, like cisplatin, often rely on platinum as the main part of the molecule to work and have side effects that are very similar to what the victims reported. Research on neurotoxicity and oxotoxicity, toxins that affect the brain and the ear, respectively, with regards to chemotherapy, suggests that hearing loss and cognitive trouble is not only a normal side effect, but can be severe in high enough doses. In fact, poisoning using an easily available pharmaceutical is more probable than an acoustic attack, primarily because of how innocuous it could be. Poisoning by food, drinking water, or even an aerosol is totally possible. One researcher cites the fact that the AP report mentions neurological damage as well as hearing loss, and this lines up. It has to be a neurotoxin that causes neuroatrophy as opposed to a person being exposed to a sound because of the brain part. 
And that's where the anti-cancer drug as poison argument gains more traction. The brain part. While you do not need to necessarily pinpoint a specific anti-cancer drug as the culprit, lots of drugs cause tinnitus and hearing loss and nausea and memory loss as side effects. Even high doses of aspirin can do this. Scientists strongly maintain the idea that a toxin can affect not only a person's hearing, but their brain as well. The reported neurodamage that affected the 21 Americans hinge on the notion that the sound exposure was potentially so low it's hard to hear. That's on the level with what medical journals have reported and science has shown to be repeatedly true about tinnitus and other anti-cancer drugs. Heavy metals, like mercury, exhibit similar signs of brain damage and vertigo, according to Dr. John Caravanos, a professor of environmental health and sciences at New York University and an expert on mercury poisoning. But what makes mercury less likely is that it's an airborne toxin. It's possible through food, but most of what I see is airborne, or mercury incorporated in the soil, Caravano says. While Caravanos says mercury vapor is damaging to neurological tissue, mercury doesn't cause hearing loss, but can cause muscle twitching, a symptom that unfortunately none of the victims reported. And maybe most interesting, at least to me, anti-malaria drugs, common in places like Cuba and required for government employees who travel to these locations, can cause similar side effects, particularly in high enough dosages. So poison sounds like a winner, until we consider the fact that those who worked close to these diplomats, in their homes, for example, or lived as neighbors, they didn't demonstrate any of these symptoms. No airborne toxins, such as a common mosquito fumigant used in the area, were found in high enough concentrations. Also, the victims did not demonstrate any other symptoms that are linked with toxicity, like fever. And maybe most importantly, the poison argument works only if there was neurological or brain injury. So it looks like we can scratch poison off the list as well. So what did Cuba say was behind these attacks? Clearly, the White House and the State Department hold Cuba responsible. If not for the attacks directly, then for violating the Geneva Convention and failing to keep our diplomats safe. And worse still, putting them in harm's way by not taking greater action to bring the parties responsible to justice. The Cuban government appeared, at least in the available reporting, to be as confused as the Americans were when the attacks first began in 2016, even sympathetic up to a point. After nine months of being hampered by a complete lack of access to medical records of the affected Americans, a panel of Cuban scientists declared that the U.S. diplomats likely suffered a collective psychogenic disorder. Based on the nature of the symptoms, their presentation and spread. This possible explanation for the illness cluster is commonly called mass psychogenic illness, or MPI. This condition is a nervous system disturbance characterized by the rapid spread of illness signs and symptoms among members of a cohesive social group for which there is no corresponding organic origin. 
Some U.S. scientists have even already reached similar conclusions. Dr. Stanley Fawn, a neurologist at Columbia University, who has seen a summary of the Cuban report, agrees it certainly could be all psychogenic. This panel appointed by the Cuban government consists of some of their top scientists. But the State Department declined to comment on the Cuban findings. We continue to cooperate with the Cubans in this regard and within the appropriate channels, a spokesperson told Science Insider. At present, the spokesperson said, we do not have definitive answers on the source or cause of the attacks. Part of the difficulty in recognizing outbreaks of mass sociogenetic illness has to do with its diverse nature. A historical review of this event suggests that the features of mass sociogenetic illness tend to mirror popular social and cultural preoccupations that define distinct eras and reflect unique social beliefs about the nature of the world. Episodes can be traced back to the Middle Ages in response to natural disasters, such as floods and famine, and stress associated with the Black Death. Outbreaks occur amidst a backdrop of anxiety. Prior to the 18th century, most cases were triggered by the fear of witches and demons. Since the 19th century and the rise of scientific rationalism, the majority of outbreaks have occurred in schools and factories. In the 20th century to today, episodes of mass hysteria can grow from strange odors, presumed to be an environmental contaminant, or a toxic gas from a bioterrorist attack, or chemical warfare. These phantom events have been commonly blamed in producing breathlessness, nausea, headaches, dizziness, and weakness in affected people. But that the American sonic attack victims all suffered from a psychogenic episode is probably a faulty conclusion. 24 people is a high number, and to enact that type of auditory hallucination is difficult to orchestrate, doctors have reported out. They also agree that auditory hallucinations are often connected to conditions like schizophrenia, and those patients report hearing people talking or music. But tintinitis sounds are not elaborate. They're more primitive and constant, doctors have said. It's like hissing, buzzing, bacon frying in a pan, but there is something of interest and worthy to note in Cuba's response, even if it is only symbolic. This scientific finding basically takes every covert event that America historically has perpetrated on Cuba and the Castro regime and doubles them back on America. The country that weathered through the exploding seashells and the falsified acts of the second coming of God basically told the media and the U.S. State Department that these symptoms are because of the anxiety that your nation put Cuba through. The American psyche cannot imagine a normal relationship with Cuba, so it made itself sick. So while this last option may not be the total cause of the Cuban sonic attack, it may be a key ingredient, the charm that fueled this whole weird story. The hysteria didn't occur in a vacuum. It was invoked by the American history with Cuba. But if it wasn't acoustics or toxicity, what did the doctors find? And why is the American State Department so adamant to tell us it's an ongoing investigation that they are taking very seriously? 
Maybe the doctors and the State Department know what's behind the noise. Maybe they know what the weapon is that left 21 people injured and effectively ended our foreign relation with Cuba. Maybe they know the cause and who is ultimately responsible. And maybe, after our last episode of the series, you, our dear listeners, you will know too. The Doctor and the Secretary. That's our final episode of Sonic Attack. The final episode of this long, weird story. Thank you for listening to the Whatever Remains podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with our next and final episode of the series. You can find us at whateverremainspodcast.com. Drop me a line at marie at whateverremainspodcast.com. Or on Twitter at whateverremains. Be sure to subscribe to us on iTunes or wherever you find your favorite shows. And if you're so inclined, leave us a review. Our sound editing is by Michael Buchanan. Our theme by Group Rhoda. The Whatever Remains logo is by the very talented Desdemona. Additional voice talents for this episode provided by Theron Lafatan. This has been a Damn It Chippy production. Keep listening, won't you?